So we're coming to the Bible reading now, uh, which today is from Matthew chapter 16. Beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks, Caroline. It's a longer than normal reading this morning. We're going to get Jenna to come up in a moment and read the second part. But as we reflect on a passage that gets to the heart about what it means to, to believe in Jesus, it's, it's appropriate for us to declare together these words that Christians have declared for, for many centuries about what it means to believe, not just in God the Son, but in God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as well. So let's declare the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. 
He is now seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Apostolic Church, the fellowship of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life eternal. Amen. Thanks, Jenna. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Well, thank you, Jenna, for reading so well there. Um, now, the talk outline is in the leaflet, and for those who are used to following this, you should know that proportionately, 80% um, or more will be spent on the first half of the page, so don't panic. All right, let's pray. Our loving Father, thank you so much uh, for a chance to spend time in the rich teaching of Jesus, and we pray that you'd open our eyes uh, to see him better and to trust him more in Jesus' name. Amen. Who do you say I am? Growing up as a twin, 
the question of identity came up a fair bit, which my brother and I would exploit. In year two, I remember fooling some year one girls who were convinced that there was only one of us because we only allowed one to appear at any one time. In a game of chasings, I would run behind the long classroom block and then my twin brother would appear on cue a millisecond later from the other end and they had no idea how we could run so fast. Great fun. Uh, fast forward to university. People in our separate courses didn't know that there were two of us. I remember being once in line at a shop, the guy behind me, who I didn't know, said, I'll see you in physics in an hour. And I said, no, you won't. And he looked at me and I said, because I'm the person who you're thinking of's twin brother. And I remember his look, that is a really weird thing to say, unless it's true. Who do you say I am, Chris or Adam? Usually the answer doesn't re didn't really matter, it was just fun, but sometimes it would matter. Like the time uh, we swapped uh, year 12 classes, general studies, and my teacher threw a surprise year 12 assessment task on me, which I did very well at. Good old Adam. Uh, <laughs> or m even more so, uh, after Narelle and I and Adam and Kate had got married, the four of us went away for a weekend. And I remember distinctly standing there doing the washing up at the sink and feeling a little hand slip around my waist and looking across and saying, hello, Kate. And she went, oh, like this, and withdrew her hand. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Who do you say I am? When identity impacts someone else, their answer to that question really matters. We've just heard Jesus asking his disciple that question. He edges them to it. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And then what about you? Who do you say I am? Now for the people who aren't yet following him, it's a very important question, isn't it? If he really is the saviour, the one and only saviour God sent, then you need to grasp his hand, don't you? If he really is, the one through whom God made the whole world, the one in whom life exists, then he, he is whom life is about. If he really is the loving ruler of the world, you need to come under his loving and saving rule. So the question of who do you say I am is a really important question for people who don't yet know him. But also for those who do know him, for his disciples, it's an important question and it's to them that Jesus poses it. I'd always thought, oh no, no, it's a question for the unbeliever. But in fact, Jesus poses it for those who are already following him. And it's not simple, it's got layers. If I said to you, who do you say I am? Well, the first level is you're Chris, but I know that you know that's my name, so who do you say I am? Oh, you know, the guy who wears crazy shirts, whose hair often goes a bit skew with. Um, yes, but who do you say that I am. Now I'm searching for a deeper answer. And I don't know what you'd say. You might say, I don't know, pastor, preacher. But who do you really say I am? Now we're getting uncomfortable, right? So let's just leave it there, <laughs> okay? Um, Jesus asks this question of people who know him. And he asks us this question. Who do you say I am? 
son of God? Am I worth taking risks for? Cam has just announced a gospel distribution. Christmas invitations are printed. Opportunities will present themselves to share the good news. Some of our young adults are away on green team this weekend, spending time with year 12 partying people, trying to talk to them about Jesus. Well, we will take hold of those opportunities if we're convinced he's important and worth taking risks for. So he asks the question, doesn't he? Who do you say I am? In chapter 16, the question is answered and that sets expectations for what it means to follow him because the expectations come from whatever answer you give. In chapter 17, those expectations are clarified most of the time in chapter 16. First of all, to set our expectations about what following him means, we are given the answer to the question, who is Jesus really? And the answer is this, that Jesus is the unique savior of the world. He is the real and mighty son of God. And yet, he must lose his life to victoriously reign. First of all, he is unique, real, and mighty. Jesus, we're told, asked that question at a specific place. At Caesarea Philippi, you probably haven't thought about that. You might just think, oh, that's just a historical detail. He asks it at that, that place for a reason. Who do you, people say the son of man is? Who do you say I am? Not all locations are important, this one is. Caesarea Philippi was the furthest place north that Jesus went. For 200 years, it had been a site of pagan worship. So you can see, if you look up on YouTube, where the sacrifices were offered to the Greek god Pan on the left. There, there you go, just um, over at that sort of mouth of that cave there. Um, a few meters to the right, in that limestone cliff wall are where statues of Caesar um, and Zeus were, were placed and, and temples used to be there for the, their worship as well. This was a popular site of pagan worship and Jesus chooses this place to ask the question of his identity and that's significant. It would be like Jesus going to Mecca in Saudi Arabia or Jesus standing in the middle of a Hindu temple and saying to people, who do people say that I am? In other words, he deliberately chooses a pluralistic setting to ask the question. And given where he's standing, Peter's answer is absolutely remarkable. In this pluralistic setting, he says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Given where he's standing, he is saying, you are the unique and only savior of the world. None of the other gods can save. All these people worshiping in front of us are wasting their time. You alone are the savior, not just for us, you are the unique and only savior for all the world. So he's unique. And then he's saying, and guess what? You're real. These temples are full of statues. You can see where they used to be placed up in the, in the, the rock there. We see them, but you're not a statue. You're living, you're alive, you're real. You are the son of the living God. Not the dead gods, but the living God. You are real. And thirdly, you are mighty. The grotto or the cave where Pan was worshipped was called the Gates of Hades. It was filled with water at the time of Jesus. It isn't so now. Um, 
it got, um, there were earthquakes and stuff which blocked that up, but it was thought to be a gateway to the underworld, to the place of the dead. They didn't know how deep it went. To worship the god Pan, you'd stand out the front, you'd slit the throat of a goat, and you'd toss the goat into the water. If it sunk, the sacrifice was accepted by Pan, who was from the underworld. If it floated, the sacrifice was rejected. You had to keep going and getting another goat or, or a child and throw it in. And if it sunk, it was accepted. The gates of hell, you can imagine the, the water just ran blood red. When Peter makes his confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus then says to him, you are Peter, rock, Petros. And on this rock, not that rock, this rock, the rock of your confession of me as the Christ, I will build my church. And then he says, and guess what? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, I'd always thought by Jesus' words here that that meant that Satan will be waging a war against the church, but don't worry, Jesus will defend it. This week, I thought about the role of the gate in a battle, and I had an aha moment, because I realized I'd been thinking the wrong way around. I'd been thinking Satan was on the offense, and Jesus and the church were on the defense. But then I realized in a fortified city, a gate is not an offensive weapon used to go forth and attack. It is a defensive weapon when the, you know, your enemy are up against you. And you, you can defend yourselves with the gate when you're being attacked. The enemy comes against you, you raise the drawbridge, you, you lower the portcullis, the army gets close, you can drop boiling oil or water you know, on them from the, the gate. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not overcome the church, he's saying Satan is in the defense and the church is in the offense, you see. We are the ones attacking Satan's kingdom. How? With the apostolic news that Jesus is the unique savior of the world. He is real. He is the mighty son of the living God who is not dead. We have the news of the gospel the great offensive weapon. Jesus says, because you've now got the key to the gospel, you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, there is a connection between what you say, what you can now say is true in heaven because of what you say is true on earth. How so? Because Peter has the gospel. And so if Peter comes to someone and he explains to them that Jesus is the unique savior of all the world, that he is the mighty son of God. And if that person hears this and believes it and turns to God by trusting in Jesus, then Peter and indeed we could say, on that basis, you are forgiven. In Jesus' name, God forgives you. And Jesus says, it's true. It's true in heaven. And conversely, if someone hears but doesn't turn and trust in Jesus, you can say, on that basis, you are not forgiven. And they won't be. Now, when you think about it, this is astounding authority. Jesus had already given them authority to cast out demons, but that has nothing on this. When Jesus uh, 
pronounced the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he was accused of blasphemy and people wanted to stone him. Well, now Jesus gives that ability to the disciples. It's astounding because they have the gospel, which we do as well. So Jesus is the unique, real and mighty saviour and son of the living God. And then comes the strangest thing. After getting Peter to make this landmark confession, Jesus orders his disciples to be quiet. Make sure you don't tell anyone about this, that I am the Messiah. Why keep this quiet? Because he had to then do the essential task the Messiah had to do to make salvation possible. Uh, it would have been raising the curtain too early. He still has to lose his life. From that time on, we're told Jesus began to explain that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must be killed, the Greek is emphatic, and on the third day then be raised to life. Now we've heard how Peter then rebukes Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus. (laughs) Unbelievable. Because it doesn't compute. How, How could the one who is the savior suffer and die? It makes no sense. But in Peter's rebuke, Jesus hears the whisper of Satan because Satan knows, he knows. And thinking back to Satan's tempting of Jesus in the desert, this was the exact temptation. Have all the glory now, Jesus, but don't go the way of suffering because suffering for Satan would be hell. Now that temptation, that whisper of Satan was genuinely tempting for Jesus because he didn't want to suffer. He was fully human, he, he shed real blood, he cried real tears, the pain was real. And yet he did suffer because he had to, to win us salvation. Jesus knew that he, the unique saviour, the mighty son of God, must lose his life. And then comes the kicker, as must those who follow him. Peter protests, this shall never happen to you. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, when we use that phrase, we have to all bear our cross, we water it down. We think taking up our cross means putting up with that loud neighbor who's just a bit painful. Well, that's a good thing to do, but Jesus means so much more than that. Because back then, the Romans, of course, you know, this made those who were sentenced to crucifixion carry their cross to the place of execution. So if you saw someone carrying their cross, you knew that there was only one place that they were going. They were going to death. Jesus said, I'm about to take up my cross and lose my life. And if you're my follower, if you're gonna follow me, and that's the road I'm going on, guess what, that's your road too. To follow me, necessarily means taking up your cross and losing your life. Now we know this literally happened to 10 of the 12 disciples, excluding Judas who betrayed Jesus and hung himself and John who was the only one to die in old age, exiled for Jesus on the island of Patmos. The rest literally lost their lives for Jesus. But it's not just them, of course. Jesus says, whoever would follow me, meaning every disciple, not just one, what does this mean for us? We live in a safe place, right? We're not, it doesn't mean that we're to seek death. 
doesn't mean we're to be in self, into self-flagellation or something like that, love pain. We must recognize, however, that when we come to follow Jesus, he bids us come and die, to die to ourselves, so that we give up to Jesus our ambitions, we give up to him what we own, we give him our lives, everything we have we give to him, and should he demand our life, should the situation occur, we walk that road because Jesus walked it for us. Now, probably we won't have to, but we might take risks. About four years ago, I was sitting in an airport in Myanmar with Mark Peterson. A Buddhist monk came up and sat next to Mark and started talking to him. We thought, do we now tell him about Jesus? There was a soldier about six feet away with an AK-47. We looked at each other and said, yes, that's exactly what we do. So we did. I didn't really think I could get shot, but I thought I might get deported. It was the beginning of our trip. But we didn't. But I could have. Anyway. Well, why must we lay down our lives? Because of his example, he did it for us. We follow him because, and we do it also, not just because of that, but because of the judgment to come. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life, in other words, if you just live for now, guess what, you're gonna lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. In other words, we live for the life to come, not for what we can have now, because that way of living is empty. Nick Saros is a real estate agent. For years, Nick and his wife Lorraine were part of the congregation I was pastoring at Trinity City. Before Nick was converted, he was the head of Adelaide's organized crime network. He was a criminal. He had a monopoly in Adelaide on drug supply and distribution. On the day that he was about to take out his first assassination attempt, his best friend knocked on the front door and said, Nick, I've become a Christian. That was random, but he had enough fear of God to pick up the phone and cancel his assassination job. He kept going with the drug business. He was rolling in money. He had more money than the Prime Minister. He, he walked past a Porsche shop and he went in and bought a Porsche in cash. It, money was his God. Every night, he, he'd say, he'd counted on the kitchen table. But then his wife, Lorraine, became a Christian and it used to infuriate him. She would just walk past him, counting his money like it didn't matter because it didn't matter to her. It drove him crazy. It was, he said it wasn't until he, he'd taken his wife on a round-the-world trip and he was sitting on a beach, on a deck chair, on a Greek island. And he said, my wife is sitting on a deck chair on a Greek island. She's reading the Bible on a Greek island, on a deck chair. She's reading the Bible. And then it, she, he said it was only when he was away. And she said, you should listen to this, Nick. It's really good. He said, okay, what's it say? She read out Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. What profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And Nick said the words went through him like a knife. It was the start of his journey to becoming a Christian. It was scary. He had to give up the only life he knew, being a criminal. He couldn't read. But he did have a great relational network with other crims. 
they'd worked for him. So after becoming a Christian, Nick went to the prisons to tell the prisoners about Jesus and how they could be forgiven. Nick still follows Jesus, and guess what now? He's a real estate agent. (laughs) And he keeps getting awards because he is so honest. True. Who is Jesus? He is the unique, real, and mighty saviour who had to lose his life, as must we, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Have they given up their lives? Have they denied themselves, taken up the cross and followed me, or not? And then Jesus speaks of his victorious reign, verse 28. He says, C.S. Lewis said this was the most embarrassing verse in the whole of Scripture. Ready? He said, truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is he talking about? (laughs) He cannot be talking about his return on the day of judgment because he would have got the timing massively wrong. Is he then talking about the transfiguration, which is the next thing to happen? Or is he talking about his resurrection or ascension into heaven? Or is he talking about entering his father's glory on the day of, sorry, and pouring out the spirit on the day of Pentecost? Unlikely, because the time frame he gives seems to be speaking of something years ahead when only some of the disciples are still alive. Most likely then, he's talking about him reigning on high from heaven and causing people to enter his kingdom as the apostles preach and as he therefore draws people to him through through sending out his spirit and the outgoing of, of the apostolic word. And the church then is growing and expanding and his kingdom is growing, the son of man coming into his kingdom. Satan's kingdom at that point is now in defense but losing against the offensive battle waged by Jesus' disciples as they share the gospel. This is when Jesus is victoriously reigning. Okay, that's chapter 16. Now we speed up. If if chapter 16 is about who we think Jesus really is and then setting expectations of what following him means, losing our lives but winning against Satan's kingdom through sharing the gospel, Chapter 17 now clarifies those expectations because guess what? The disciples have questions. First of all, could everything Jesus have said about himself really be true? We need to know that, right? Well, the answer is yes. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain and suddenly he is transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. His clothing is as white as light. I thought of doing this for the kids' talk, but I couldn't for the life of me work out how I could at all get close to making this visual. I mean, whatever you do is such such a poor comparison. They are seeing Jesus in his heavenly glory. He, He really is the mighty son of God. And then, then they see Moses and Elijah, two towering figures of the Old Testament. They they appear and they start talking with Jesus. Moses has been dead for 1,300 years, Elijah 900. And here they are alive and talking with Jesus. And if that was not enough, then this cloud of God's glory appears. And then, like Moses on the mountain heard 
God's voice in the cloud that enveloped Sinai. Now, Peter, James, and John, they hear the audible spoken voice of the living God. And when Peter, when he saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus, he said, oh, let me go and put up three booths with you. Whatever he was thinking, <laughs> foot in mouth Peter, whatever he was thinking, he was making a mistake by putting Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same level, right? Three booths, equal treatment. God says, no, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. You listen to him. Now that voice was given not for Jesus' benefit but for the sake of the disciples and you can imagine seeing all this, hearing God's own voice, endorsing Jesus as his unique son, that would have changed your life. If they had any doubts about who Jesus really was, now they don't. If they had any doubts about whether it was true what Jesus was saying, they don't. If they had any doubts about Jesus' importance or his glory or his power, they don't. Which now raises the question, well, shouldn't we, ex we shouldn't therefore expect suffering or defeat, right? That's the sense behind Matthew 17 verses nine to 13. The disciples thought that Elijah or John the Baptist would come and restore all things after which surely they shouldn't expect suffering and defeat if Elijah's come and restored all things. Jesus said, look, Elijah did come, John actually, and his ministry was effective. But if they killed John, they're gonna have their way with me as well. Jesus' disciples expected no opposition, no suffering, no setbacks because Jesus came after Elijah or John who came first and would put all things right. Jesus says that sequence of things, that causality is not quite right in your head. Now, we live at a different time but we can think the same. The disciples thought now that John or Elijah has come, there'll only ever be victory. We can think now that Jesus has come and he's on the throne, there'll only ever be victory. Not necessarily, says Jesus. Third question. So what do you need from us? They come down the mountain. The disciples who had not been up on the mountain, the other nine, had tried to drive out an evil spirit from a boy, but they couldn't. And Jesus rebukes them, and you, you can hear his exasperation. He rebukes them for their paucity of faith. Why couldn't we drive it out? It's because you have such poor faith. Reading between the lines, they'd thought that they had power in themselves when all along it's Jesus who has the authority. Ministry can only ever be conducted by trusting in him, by leaning on him, by expecting him to work through us. And what he needs from us, it's not confidence in ourselves, no, he needs from us faith, faith in him. So last, how will Jesus' lordship be seen? And now we get to the end of chapter 17, which wasn't read out. This is an odd moment. The disciples need to pay a temple tax. Jesus says, look, you don't really, we're exempt, but so as not to cause offence. Peter, go down to the lake, throw out a fishing line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, the coin for the tax will be there, pay the tax with that. And I've left my last page down here. <laughs> Thank you. 
And he says, pay the tax with that. And this is not a powerful healing miracle or a feeding miracle. Jesus is not stopping the wind and the waves. In one way, it's extraordinary, it's ordinary, but in another way, it's totally extraordinary because what sort of level of lordship does Jesus have to have to make this possible? He has to be able to know where on the sea bottom is the four drachma coin. He has to be able to direct a fish to that exact spot to pick it up in its mouth. He has to know exactly where Peter is going to stand on the shore and direct that fish in a school of fish to Peter at exactly that moment of time. And then he has to direct that fish at that moment in time to be the one that bites the hook. That is astounding level of lordship and sovereignty. How will Jesus' lordship be seen? It is through him doing the extraordinary in the detail as his disciples step out and serve. Now, I am boggled at how often when people ring me and say, can you pray for this, the prayers get answered. I'm boggled because I don't think that I have very strong prayers at all. And I'm not a special Christian, that's true. But it's not about me, it's about Jesus and his lordship. How do the disciples um, continue on their ministry after Jesus is gone? Through exercising faith in him who is Lord and who is charging the gates of hell. Through being bold with the gospel that he has given. The gospel which is all about him. He being the unique, real and mighty saviour of the world and the son of God. He is worth taking risks for. He is worth leaning on. He is worth serving. Father in heaven, give us strength and faith to answer the question in our hearts, who do you say I am? And then to take risks because Jesus is so worth it. Amen.